And uh, we'll get started in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, today after our days and our jobs, our day-to-day life, we uh, give those things to you. We ask you to, to now release us from those things and to open our, our souls, our hearts, our minds to you, to truth, uh, to ask the questions about what life is about, uh, to pursue you, to not insist on our own way, but to find yours. Bless our time tonight. We give it to you through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so tonight's kind of a fun night. Tonight we're going to go over and we're going to go into the church. And we're going to talk about why do we do what we do. What are all the different parts. So we'll talk about that. But before we do that, last time, I'm, can I just tell you, when we have major snowstorms and I cancel RCIA, it's like devastating. It's like, I seriously, I'm like, I'm like, praying that we don't have to cancel but so it's been two weeks so I just want to come back to that though and let's just do some Q&A at the start tonight so any any questions about Eucharist sacraments or anything yeah right Yeah, great question. So the question is about when she, she was saying when she grew up, there were both, you received the body and the blood. And at Lourdes, we've recently just had the body. It's that at Lourdes right now, it's purely practical because we're in a gym. And that's why we're doing it that way. Um, the church's teaching, though, is that actually if you only receive one of the two, if you only receive the body or the blood, that actually it is the fullness of Christ himself. So you don't have to receive both. If you're someone who's kind of like, I just don't feel comfortable drinking from the same cup that 400 people drank from, right? I, to me, like, I'm a guy. I'm like, I really don't care. But some of you are that way. That's fine. No worries. Um, you don't have to. It's a fuller sign, right? But, but the fullness of Christ is contained in both what we call them species. So the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. So that's a good question. But we will have both of them when we go back to the church. We did it purely out of kind of like just logistical concerns here. Other questions? You guys are totally lame. Totally lame. Well, why, if you're not going to ask me questions, let's just see if you took anything from the last couple classes. So why do Catholics believe that the Eucharist is a symbol, but much, much more than a symbol, that it's actually the body of Christ? Why do we believe that? Okay, Scripture says that. Okay, where does Scripture say that? I know, aren't I a jerk, Pam? I know. Okay, so at the Last Supper, and what does Jesus say at the Last Supper? Right, he says, this is my body, right? One of the things the early church fathers say 
is they say, you know, because it's hard, let's be honest, it's hard to believe it, isn't it? And I want to encourage you, it should be. If you're engaged as a, as a Catholic, you should be at Mass saying, and I, I have done this so many times in my life, I can't even tell you. You should be at Mass saying, Jesus, is that really you? <laughs> like, really? Is that really you? And if you're doing that, I think that's a really good thing. Because it means you're engaged. And I have done that so many times in my life, I can't even tell you. It's really important. So one of the things the early church fathers say, people will say, well, how can that, that's silly. You Catholics, it's so silly. And other Christians will say, that's so silly, right? Like, how could you believe that piece of bread is the body of Jesus Christ? Well, one of the things I say to them is what, say to them, and not me, the early church says, is they say, if you can believe that God created, how did God create the universe? How did God create the universe? Well, he didn't breathe it. He, he spoke it. God spoke creation to being, right? Let there be light. And one of the things the early church says is that if you can believe that, that's actually much more difficult to believe that God could create something out of nothing by his word than that he could take something that already exists and transform it by his word. And so the early church says, you know, when Christ says, this is my body, that is the same word speaking that says, let there be light. And God's word transforms things. It creates things. Okay, so Jesus says it at the Last Supper, right? And lots of church fathers, when I was, and I know I've told this story, but when I was in college, I went to a, a Christian gathering and, and, you know, great people, good night, but people don't know how to deal with this. And this pastor got up in a group, in front of a group like this, and he was reading from, I think it was Matthew's volume, Matthew's gospel, Matthew 26. And he got up there and he said, and Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, take this all of you and eat it for this is a symbol of my body. And I didn't know the Bible anywhere near what I do today, but I wanted to scream, right? Because that's not what he said. And the early church makes a big deal about that, right? Okay, so the last supper, Jesus says that. Where else does Jesus teach? Yeah, Steve. Jeffy, right. Right. One year before the Last Supper. Exactly. Right. Yeah, it's in John 6 at the beginning of the chapter, we're told it's the Feast of Passover, right? And Jesus celebrates the Last Supper, the Feast of Passover. And one of the things about that, I love that verse. One of the things I, I will tell people is they'll say, well, it could be figurative. And I say, what would he have to say to convince you he doesn't, he's not being figurative? And, and one more thing, we probably haven't talked about this. <clears throat> in the Greek, Jesus in John chapter 6, when he talks about how uh, he says, you know, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, 
You have no life within you. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. It's John 6, 52, 6, 53. Jesus, when the Jews, when, at first when he says you have to eat my flesh, the Greek word he uses is trogain. Um, I start running Greek. Trogain. Um, and then what happens is the Jews push back. They say, oh, you can't be, that's ridiculous. That's, that's oh, terrible. And in, that, in fact, in Leviticus 17 and 23, Jews are forbidden to drink blood of even animals. They're absolutely forbidden, which I shouldn't even bring this up because there's a great reason why this ties to the Eucharist. But they say, you can't do that. There's no way you can really mean that. You're kidding. You're being symbolic. And Jesus changes the verb to fogging. And so in Greek, what these words mean, trogain is to eat. But it could be like, you could take that figuratively. Right? Have you ever said to a little kid and you're like, man, you're so cute, I could just eat you up. Which is kind of creepy if you think about it. Right? It's like, oh, you know, you're so cute, I will turn into a cannibal. It's awesome. Um, but, but it could be figurative. So a lot of people say, oh, it's just figurative speech. And they push back on Jesus and they push back and push back and push back. And Jesus changes his language. And this is a more graphic form of to eat. It literally means to gnaw or chew. So when people push back on Jesus, he actually gets stronger. Okay. And really quick, last thing, and we got to get over to the other side because you know how this goes when I start on something that we're not supposed to talk about. We don't get anywhere and it's all your fault. Um, one last thing. Can someone, so last time what we did is we talked about Luke 24, which is the road to Emmaus, which is either that or John 21 is my favorite resurrection story. So powerful. Hard to choose between the two. They're so beautiful. But anyway, does anybody want to remind the class, why, why does Luke 24, the walk to Emmaus, how is that a story about the Eucharist? You know, this is where you make me feel like I'm actually a good priest, right? How is it? Okay. Okay, good. So they, so this, these two people, right, or remember this? Let's just do this really, really quick. They're leaving Jerusalem in Luke 24, these two disciples, and they're walking to Emmaus. And one of the words that's used is uh, hodas, which is the way. But remember, these two people, they're going the wrong direction. Right? To be a Christian is to walk in the way. It's to follow Christ. It's to walk with him. That's what it means to be a Christian. But these two, they, they say Jesus appears and he walks with them, but they don't know it's him. And he says, what's going on? And they say, oh, you know, uh, we're leaving Jerusalem. There is this prophet. And notice how they say prophet. They don't say Messiah. They don't say son of God. They say prophet. And he was great in deed and in word. And we had hoped right? Their hope was in the past tense. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. 
And the Christian community is in Jerusalem and they're leaving. So they're on the way, but they're actually leaving the way. They're, they're leaving their faith. So they're walking and they get talking and Jesus says, oh, you foolish and sl- you heart of heart, how foolish you are. You don't believe anything that the prophets or the law has spoken. That it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and undergo his passion and so uh, receive his glory. And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he opened the scriptures to them and showed them all the things in scripture that concerned himself. Right? So that's what we call a homily. Right? It's a really, really good homily, right? You have, you have readings just like we have at Mass. We start every Mass with readings, and then the priest, if he's worth his salt, explains what the readings mean. That's a homily. And then they get to Emmaus, and the couple says, oops, I gave it away. The, the two disciples say, right? Remember that? The two disciples say, hey, stay with us. And Jesus kind of like fakes him out. He's like, pretends he's going to keep going. And they're like, stay with us. And then he sits at table with them. And while they're at table, he takes, blesses, breaks, and gives bread to them. Which are the same four verbs, the exact same order that Jesus used at the Last Supper two chapters earlier. So in Luke's gospel, we're in Luke 24 is the road to Emmaus, the resurrection, right? And just, and just, and, and it's not even two chapters. Like when you open Luke's gospel, it's like a page. Jesus, and it was three days ago, right? This is Easter Sunday evening, this is happening. And Jesus had the last supper when? Thursday night. So th- this isn't like a long old part of the story. This was Thursday night. And at Thursday night, right, when Jesus is at the Last Supper, he takes, takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives. And it says, when he does that at the Last Supper, or I'm sorry, at the road to Emmaus, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, right? And it says specifically, they recognized him, And then they go back to Jerusalem and they tell the apostles the whole story. And they say, and and Luke makes this big point. He says, they recounted all that had happened on the way and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. That phrase will show up again in Luke t- or in Acts 2.42. The breaking of the bread. So I forget what verse that is in Luke. It's Luke 24. Uh, I can look it up if you want. And then Acts 2.42. And in Acts 2.42, we're told that the center of the early church, there were four things. The teaching of the apostle, of the apostles, fellowship, prayer, and the breaking of the bread. And Acts 2 tells us that's the center of early Christianity, are those four things. Okay. But lastly, and I've already got more than I wanted to, shocker. Lastly, right, the coolest thing about this whole story is that this couple is a married couple. 
When people read this story, they think it's two men. But it's weird because they own a house together. Right? They're staying together as they walk. And then we're told that one of them uh, is named Cleopas. And in John 19, there's a woman at the cross named Mary of Cleophas. They're slightly different, but they're the same name, one in Aramaic and one in Greek. It's the same name. And we know for a fact that that name is an extraordinarily, it's not John, it's not Matt, it's not Mary. It's an extremely rare name in the ancient world. So the odds that there is someone walking away from Jerusalem that has the same name as someone, uh, someone's husband who's at the cross and they were both in the early Christian community, astronomical chances. This is a married couple. And the wife in this couple was standing at the foot of the cross with Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of God, and John the apostle. Okay, so last thing, sorry, gosh, this story is so powerful, right? Um, last thing, right, and remember this, I know you remember this. So there, this couple, right, the Bible is a story about marriage. In the beginning of the Bible, you get a story about marriage. Adam and Eve are the crown of creation. The last chapter of the Bible in Revelation is about the bride of Christ, the heavenly Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from God to earth, and it's the church. Right? There's this marriage. The Bible is about marriage. So at the, at the culmination, the high point of Luke's gospel, the greatest moment that ever has happened is the resurrection. And that night, Luke, of all stories he could have told, he tells a story about a married couple. And after they eat the, the Eucharist, their eyes are opened and they recognize him in the breaking of the bread. Now remember, what, what is that echo? Yeah. The only other time in, in all of the story of the Bible, which is a very big book, right? Not small, small print. The only other time in all of Scripture where a couple eats something and their eyes are opened is when Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And their eyes are opened. Right? And so when we went through all this, so powerful. So Adam and Eve sinned by doing that. And what Luke wants to show us is at the height of the resurrection, at the height of Christ's story of redemption, there's a couple who's redeemed. And the, the, in Eden, Adam and Eve, eat, they ate of what tree? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Genesis chapter 2 tells us there were two trees in Eden that had names. The first one's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The second tree is what? The tree of life. And in the New Testament, what's the tree of life? It's the cross. The cross is the tree of life in the New Testament. And its fruit is the Eucharist. Mind blown, right? I have taught, and like, like I said last time, I have taught that I don't know, 100 times, 200 times. Every time I tell it, I get emotional. 
right? The, the, the way the early church tells us that Adam and Eve were forbidden to re-enter Eden and to eat of the fruit of the tree of life, right? But the early church tells us that because of Christ's death and resurrection, the way to the tree of life is now open, right? And the tree of life is the cross and its fruit is the Eucharist. Oh, I love this stuff. Amazing. If you, brothers and sisters, if you remember this, study this. If you read about this, you will know. And if you remember this, right there, you'll know more than 99% of Catholics. And that's what Christianity is all about. I'm just kidding. Okay, <clears throat> quick questions. And then I just want to remind you that we're going to go over because I want to do practicals, which I'm not as good at, but we're going to do practicals now. So any last questions before we go? Yeah. Um, Why do some Catholics not participate in communion? So, very good. And we're going to talk about that over there. So let me punt, because we'll, we'll start with that. But the question, remind, if, every, if I forget, everybody help me remember, why do some Catholics not go to communion? Why would you not do that? And so we'll talk about that on the other side. Any other questions? Yeah, Pam. Not that I know of, honestly. The, I don't know if there's a symbol in the New Testament that parallels the tree of the of tree of knowledge. Yeah, not that I would think. That, not that I know of. I'd have to think about that. Yeah, Steve. Yes, but he shouldn't unless it's very serious. Yes, like the governor of New York. Thank you, Mary. Yes, basically. <clears throat> Really quickly, the only way, to, so, so a priest never knows someone if they've, like, it, like let's say, we're going to talk about why you shouldn't go to, if there's ever time you shouldn't go to communion, we'll talk about that over there, but basically it's serious sin, and, but here's the thing, if I saw you commit a serious sin, I still can't deny you communion, because I'm not sure whether or not, maybe you went to confession, maybe you repented of that sin, I don't know, I'm not God. But the only exception to that is if there's a grave public sin where, so like, so like with the governor of New York, we haven't gotten to morality right now, but um, what's his name, Como? Como has openly promoted abortion to an unbelievable stance. And he's supposedly Catholic, which is in direct contradiction to Catholic teaching. So if, if Como says, if you're in communion, communion means I'm in communion with Christ. When you go to communion, I'm in communion with Jesus. It's okay for me to go to communion. I believe what Catholicism teaches. I am a Catholic. I, I'm in communion with Christ. Well, if, you're, if you directly, publicly, and everyone knows it, you're saying, I don't believe this about the Catholic Church, and it's a really serious thing, and then you go to communion anyways, it creates scandal. And that's about the only time a priest can deny communion. Okay, everybody get up. We'll go over there. Get a book on your way over there. We have uh, Miranda. Okay, a couple minute break, but don't take too long. We're heading over. Um, get a, there's books we have for you guys, and we're going to walk through the Mass. Okay, you all ready? Yeah, thank you. Do you guys all know Mary, by the way? Okay, Mary's my assistant, and I always say, and it's because it's true, she's the real pastor at Lourdes. She runs everything. She hates it when I say that. So we hope, so these are yours. Hang on to these. 
um, these little booklets. And we hope this is something I am really good about. Here's why we, I hope I'm good about that. Was that arrogant? <laughs> I love talking about why we do things. I'm sometimes like, like Brittany Brown, who used to help me run this, she'd always say like, she's like, FB, that was such a great explanation of like, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? People don't know how to genuflect. I'm like, I don't care. So tonight's kind of the fruit of that. And so we're going to talk about those kind of things. And when you come to church and it feels weird and you're like, why does everyone know when to sit, stand, kneel, and I don't? And why do they do that that way? That's what we're going to try and tackle tonight. Okay. So these books, though, are yours to keep. And we hope they're, I think they're kind of helpful. They'll just kind of walk through um, how the mass goes. And that orange cover, right, has, is the mass. If you flip it over to the backside, they did kind of the weird, like, two-way book thing. And the backside is some basic teachings of Catholicism. Um, but we're going to be on the orange side. And all the, pra- all the prayers are on the, blue, on the blue side. Okay, thank you. Okay, so starting tonight, so, um, so I, I, if you weren't here two weeks ago, I love talking about this, but I just, one quick note. Why do Catholics not just change things and be more creative? And everyone, I think, maybe not everyone, but close to everyone feels like, why do we do the same thing every single Sunday? And the reason for this, if you remember this, is that worship is not about us. Right? The, the, the Jews, the entire point of the Exodus story is not for the Jews to be freed from slavery. If you actually study Exodus, the entire point of the Exodus story is that you and I don't know how to worship God. And God has to teach the Jews how to worship him. Right? And, and, when, and worship is tied up with love. When you really love someone, you learn how to, right, give things to them that they desire. Right? And so the, the, the modern Christian scene, and, and by the way, I think you all know this, but all those things are good, right? Like at Lourdes, we work super, super hard to, to make preaching good, to make music good. We're working really hard to make it a warm, inviting kind of experience, right? We, we tried to make the gym as beautiful as we possibly could, right? Because we know those things matter, but they're not the center, right? They're not the center. And, and what I want to get to tonight is that the worship of God is not when you feel really good. That's not the worship of God. In fact, the saints actually tell us, and by the way, I love it when I feel good with God and I hate it when I don't, right? Like in my prayer time, if I feel like God's not present, I hate that. Like I'll go pray for an hour every day and if, it feel, and if I don't feel good, I'm like, hey God, I showed up. Where are you, right? There's a famous story St. Teresa of Avila says, and she was one of the greatest mystics in the history of Christianity. And St. Teresa of Avila had this horrible day. And she was out, like, you know, proclaiming the gospel and, like, trying to fight for what was good and for what was true and what Jesus taught. And she had this horrible day. And at one point in the day, there's this horrible rainstorm. And she got knocked off of her horse. 
and was sitting in this like puddle of mud on the road. And she turned to God and she said, if this is why, how you treat your friends, it's no wonder you have so few of them, right? Um, we all get that. So those things matter, but they're not the center, right? If you're going to be a mature Christian, if you're going to be a mature Christian, if you're going to be a mature Christian, worship is not about you. And ironically, very ironically, when you get that, you'll ironically actually feel a thousand times better. The true worship of God is not when I feel good, it's what happened on the cross. That was the true worship of God. Okay. So practicals. I hate practicals. You went, yeah, will you hand me this? Just start with that, that white. Um, so we're going to start with just some basic things in the church. If any of you guys, if I'm skipping something, interrupt me. No. I'm not going to put on the vestments. Tonight we're playing dress up a priest. Um, so, so this is called an alb. So every priest wears this at every mass. Priests will oftentimes wear this at confession and anytime they perform a sacrament. I usually don't wear it for confession because it's not necessary and it's uncomfortable. Um, alb, A-L-B. So it comes from the Latin word for white. It's really creative. Here's what it is. The day that, if you haven't been baptized, but if the day, the day you were baptized, what happened is that uh, you were stripped, well, in the ancient church, you would have been stripped naked. Today, we don't necessarily strip people naked. Aren't you glad if you're being baptized at the Easter Vigil? <laughs> like, good decision. <laughs> you know? um, but the day, the day that the ancient Christians were baptized, they were stripped naked. And what that was a symbol of, and St. Paul uses this language all over the New Testament. Colossians 2 and 3, he speaks this way. He speaks this way in Ephesians. Um, I'd have to look. It's like Ephesians 4. But, but a lot of places. 1 Corinthians talks this way. When, when Christians stripped off their clothing, it's symbolic of your old way of life. That my old way of life was about me, right? My life was about making myself comfortable and having pleasure and being number one, whatever. And what happened is they would, they would profess faith in God. They'd strip their clothes. They'd go, they'd, they'd walk into the water. It was usually full immersion. They'd be baptized. And then when they came out, they were clothed in a white garment. And Paul uses this language. Again, the strongest is in Colossians 2 and 3. And he'll talk about this being symbolic of your new life. And I love that. And so the reason a priest, and what he'll say is he'll say, he'll say, all of us, therefore, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. And he'll say, put on, therefore, humility, patience, kindness, forgiveness, gentleness, love, generosity. And so a priest wears this, and then if you guys are getting baptized, we'll put you in something like this. Or actually, we'll probably just have you wear white because we don't have really nice ones. Um, 
But anyway, when I wear this for Mass, the priest, this is the first thing he puts on. The white robe reminds me of my baptism. That I have put off my old life. That I was baptized into Christ. And why is it white? Anybody, any guesses? Why white? Why not like pink? Purity. One other thing too. Purity is correct, but there's one other. It's the light. And what does light make you think of? In the, I mean, I might be playing read my mind. What are the angels, when, when do angels appear in bright white in the Gospels? Annunciation, they don't tell us, but at the resurrection. And the day, and again, if we had time, read Romans 6 if you want to read this. But the day you were baptized, you were given the promise of resurrection. And that's why a priest wears white. And, and the church, the church, by the way, one of the cool things about it, if you become Catholic, right, all the sacraments, one of the things that God gives us in sacraments is like, if, if you're someone who comes from an evangelical tradition, one of the questions you're going to have, we're going to get to it, is why do I have to go to a priest to, to confess my sins? Has anybody ever wondered that? Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. We have honest Catholics. Yeah, it seems weird, doesn't it? And here's part of the reason. We're going to go, we'll teach you the scriptural reason. But part of the reason you have to go to a priest to confess your sins is if, and I've confessed sins to God in my room before. In fact, I probably do that every day. Um, but there's something about like, we're human beings. We have bodies. I have ears. I have eyes. I have a sense of touch. And there is nothing like hearing a priest of Jesus Christ say to you, I absolve you of your sins. Our body, Catholicism says our bodies are good. And I need that. I need to hear those words. And that's part of the reason God gives the sacrament. So with colors, with standing and kneeling and sitting, with smells, the reason we have all these things as Catholics is because our bodies are good. God created them good. Okay, this thing, we're going to get through like half of a vestment tonight. This would be awesome. Um, this is called a cincture. My favorite way to entertain kids who like serve at Mass is I'll take it, they'll be in the sacristy and they're serving Mass. And I'm like, guys, check this out. So that's an old priest trick. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? <laughs> and the kids are like, I knew you were God. And I'm like, don't forget it. <laughs> what this is, a cincture, it has a practical purpose. It's a, it's a belt. Makes my, my robe, the alb, not look kind of like weird and like a moo-moo. But the symbolic meaning of this is chastity. So in the prayers a priest prays when he puts on his vestments, the, this reminds me that I am supposed to live my sexuality in the proper way that God commands. And so priests pray that when they put on their cinctures. And then when you're done, you kind of do this cool trick again when you tie it up. Okay, um, stole, Mary. Can I trade you? Thank you. 
you'll also see like that alb, the white robe. Servers wear that. Why do they wear it? As a reminder of their baptism. And the church teaches you can't receive the Eucharist if you haven't been baptized. Right? The Eucharist is the fullness of communion with God. Baptism is how we become members of the family of God. Okay, these are called stoles. This is a symbol of the priestly office. Goes all the way back to the ancient world. And we use different colors, and the different colors symbolize the different times of year we're in. So the priest wears this under the, the outer vestment. Looks really weird without an alb. But you wear it over your shoulders like this. The cincture, the belt goes over the top. You don't have to do it that way, but that's how I do it. So uh, this is a symbol of my priesthood. And it tells, it's always meant to tell you that this is a real priest. So green, we have four colors in, throughout the year. Um, you could use blue too, so that could be five. But mainly there's four colors. Does anybody know what they are? Okay, green, purple, stop it. Gold, not gold, white and red. Now gold is a substitute for white, but white's the main color. Um, the colors tell us what kind of season we're in. There's seasons of life, right? So green is ordinary time. It's the normal kind of time during the year. Um, white is days of glory, of God's light and his glory, his radiance. So white is Easter. It's Christmas. It's feasts like the transfiguration where Jesus went up on a mountain and revealed his glory. Um, it's saints who lived lives that were very pure. That's white. Um, red's kind of obvious. What's red for? Good Friday. I'll let you guys crack me up. So red's the color of blood. So red is for Holy Week because Jesus shed his blood. It's for martyrs. And it's also for the fire of the Holy Spirit. So Pentecost. So that's when you'll see red, when the priest wears red. And then purple, red, and confirmation, but that's Holy Spirit. So fire of the Holy Spirit. Purple is a color of penance. And so when we are repenting of our sins and we're saying, Lord, I want to work on my sins. I want to grow closer to you. Purple is the main color. There's two main seasons that wear purple. Advent is the season leading up to Christmas. And then Lent, which is coming up, which was invented for people becoming Catholic, is our preparation for the cross. So purple is that... And it just, I, I will tell you, look for this. I mean, it's weird that we're in the gym right now. But when Lent starts, you'll feel different when you walk in the church. When purple is around, when the vestments change, and we'll have a purple altar cloth, um, it says something to you, right? Just like the way confession, when I hear a priest tell me my sins are forgiven, when I see purple, it just speaks to me. Right? It's the same way that like we as people with bodies, right? This is, it's not exactly the same, but you can see the parallel. Is when people tell you they love you, that's wonderful. But there's something sometimes where we need a little more than that. Okay. Thank you.
Okay, so let's just talk about a few other things. So the altar symbolizes the cross. Because, right, an altar is where a sacrifice is offered up. And the place where Jesus offered the one sacrifice was on the cross. Um, So crosses are meant to teach you things. When we get in the new church, our new altar, I am like, I know I'm a priest, but it is so freaking cool. It is, it is, it is going to be so beautiful. And the architect and I have picked out different symbols that teach about the sacrifice of Christ and about his sacrifice on the cross. It's, it's so cool. So the altar is sacred, right? We don't use it for ordinary things. I don't come in here and like eat cereal on the altar, right? We have a reverence for it. And so the altar really is, and I will tell you, like, so we call this area where the stage is, we call that the sanctuary, which just means the holy place. So it's different. And so we don't, like, I don't just go hang out in the sanctuary. And when you're in a church, it's good to just say, like, there's just something reverent, like, Jesus is here, and it's just a different space. So we call that area the sanctuary. We have the tabernacle. There in the tabernacle is where we reserve the Blessed Sacrament, the Eucharist. So whenever you go to a Catholic church, whenever you come to Lourdes, the Eucharist, the tabernacle will always be right in the center. But sometimes you go to Catholic churches that are built poorly and you won't know where the tabernacle is. You'll be like, oh, the priest chair is right in the middle, which it shouldn't be. But you're like, where should, where's the tab, where's Jesus? Where's the Eucharist? And the way you can always tell is that red candle there. It's called the sanctuary lamp. And at every Catholic church in the world, if they're doing what they're supposed to do, which I don't know if I've ever seen one that doesn't have this, there's always a sanctuary lamp. And that is the symbol, that's what's telling you that Jesus is truly present here. So when we take Jesus, if we have like a talk here, we would take the Blessed Sacrament, the Eucharist, we would move it somewhere else. So as we're not just kind of like, I don't know, having like a concert or something with something really sacred there, we would move the Eucharist and we would move that lamp so people would know that Jesus is not here. Um, When you come into the church, so... Catholics, when they enter in, the first thing they do, there'll be holy water fonts, those little, like, on the wall, there's little, like, basins with water in them. And Catholics dip their finger in the water, and they make the sign of the cross. It's a reminder of your baptism. And, and it's a perfect, it's a, it's a very simple profession of faith. So you remember that you were baptized, and you confess that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you make a cross on your body. Now, here's the crazy thing. People will say, where is that in the Bible? Well, it's not. But St. Irenaeus tells us in the second century that the apostles taught all Christians that they should do that when they pray. It's one of those things the Bible doesn't say everything. (laughs) doesn't say anything explicitly about, you know, abortion doesn't say anything explicitly about modern science. The Bible has a lot of things it doesn't say. And the early church believed that we don't just kind of read the Bible. 
but that God gave us a church. And St. Irenaeus tells us that the apostles taught all Christians that when they pray, they should make the sign of the cross. Love that. Okay, so when you come in, Catholics genuflect towards the tabernacle, right? Now, what does that mean? It means your right knee, right, goes down, touches, and then sign of the cross. If you get it wrong, you are going to H-E double hockey stick. No, just kidding. <laughs> but I will see Catholics do all kinds of weird things. Sometimes they kind of curtsy. They're like... <laughs> And I'm like, that was intriguing. <laughs> or they're in a rush and they don't want the priest to know they're late. And they're like, you know, you don't genuflect towards the altar. You don't genuflect towards me. You genuflect towards Jesus. Right knee, why? In ancient custom, it's not the end of the world, but in ancient custom, your right knee was for God and your left knee was for your king. And so you, never, you would never genuflect on your right knee for a king because that belongs to God. And what is genuflecting? It's a symbol of weakness, right? That you bow before something greater than yourself. What if your genuflect is so weak you can't get up? <laughs> right, yeah. You will see people who can't genuflect. So it's okay, like you'll see priests who are, you know, for health reasons or they're just elderly and they'll just bow and that's okay, Right? It's, the symbol isn't everything, but it is, it is meaningful. Okay. So we, yeah. Anytime. Anytime you're in front of the tabernacle. Yeah, in the back. Yeah. Good, I was debating whether or not to bring this up. So the question is, and during readings, a lot of times they're like, do they genuflect in front of the altar, the tabernacle, or like what do they do during Mass? So this is a little technical. I wouldn't worry too much about this. But technically during Mass, when we're, when we're during Mass time, after the Mass has started, the main point of focus becomes the altar because we're at the one sacrifice of Jesus at the Mass. And so the proper form of reverence to the altar is a bow. So readers should technically bow to the altar and not genuflect. Now, again, just at Lourdes, we actually had this debate, do we tell readers right now to, to bow? And I, I actually made the decision, I was like, if we do that, I promise you someone's going to fall off the stage. It's just going to happen. So we told our electors just for now, just to keep walking to, the, to do the reading. But normally what they would do is they would come in front and they would bow to the altar. Other questions before we start walking through the Mass? Yeah. Yeah, so readers, basically we need more. So are you volunteering? No. So the readers, it's, it's an important ministry. So Kevin is in our back. He's one of our best lectors. Um, so lexio in Latin is to read or reading. And so that's why we call them lectors. But our readers, um, they're, they're people who volunteer to do that. And we actually have a process now, Lords, where we want, we want people to audition 
because we, the word of God is so important, we want people to hear, right? So they're just volunteers, and we just have a schedule, and they, uh, yeah, they, they volunteer for that. Does that answer it? Okay. That has everything in it. Okay. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so you can go back and look at this. That's great that there's a reference. You can go back and it has everything in there. Um, okay. Let's do one more thing. Incense. We haven't had incense in the gym. When we go back to the church, we will. We don't have incense in the gym because of fire code. Um, but have you guys seen incense? Thank you. This is page 20. Incense is like my favorite thing on earth. <laughs> After the Eucharist. Um, yeah, so an incense, what it is, a, a thurible. Is there any way we can, do we have ours back here? You didn't see it, okay. It'd probably be on the shelf. But a thurible, what it is, it's just, there's like this gold, and if you look on that page 21, it's number 13 towards the back. It's, on, it's sitting on a stand there. Um, and what it is, is like, it just, it's, a, it's a smoke maker, right? Like smoke comes out of it, and it smells amazing. But what, why do we do that? Well, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, um, in fact, in Revelation, we're told about the incense before the altar of God in heaven. Incense, the smoke rises, and it's a natural symbol of prayer. So if you go to 11 o'clock Mass, since we're back in the church, every Mass, I'll process in, and I'll have incense, and I'll go around the altar, and I'll incense the altar, and it is magnificent. It will lead you to a place, you know when you're like, let me put it this way, you know like when you're like sitting with someone you love, and you're going to watch a movie, and you're trying to figure out what kind of movie you want to watch, and you're like, I don't want to watch an action movie tonight. And like, how about a comedy? And you're just not in the mood for like whatever type of movie. We've all been there, right? Well, sometimes you're not in the mood for prayer. I just don't want to go to church. I don't want to pray. These things, our bodies, these things help us to pray. And I, I will tell you when the music's good and when the incense is going and there's that smell I am so ready to pray. I forget what else is on my, my mind. I forget the rest of the world. And I'm just ready for that. You don't have to do it every week, but I do. When we're not in the gym. So it, it, it elevates things. It's like a more solemn kind of thing. But Sunday Mass is a very solemn thing. I don't do, if I could have it my way, I would do it every Mass. But I have people who complain because they don't like the smoke. And so those curmudgeons get their way at the other masses. <laughs> That's, I, I, that honestly is why we don't have it at every Sunday mass. Okay, any other questions before we start mass? Not literally, but talking about the mass. Yeah. There's all kinds of different kinds. We just said there's companies who produce it, but you can, there's... Um, Usually, a lot of times, it's monasteries who make incense. And you, we have kind of cheap kind right now, but for our first Mass in the church, we're going to have, like... <laughs> it's going to be real nice. Yeah. 
Yep. Great question. Man-made, arbitrary. Yeah. Yeah, we're like, you know what? If we came up with this symbol, we could be millionaires, right? Yeah. Almost all of them come from Scripture. And so... Yeah. Well, the church can't control who can make these things, right? Because, like, it's kind of like even just in our law out there, right? We, we can't, like, there's, if somebody goes and, like, decides they're going to start making crosses and they look terrible. Like, for instance, this is a horrible example, but it's a true example. It's like, like the Denver Art Museum has a piece of art of a crucified naked woman that, that they display in their modern art section. And it's meant, and it says, we are, there's like a caption that says, we exist to shock you. And I think that is one of the most blasphemous, horrible mockeries of Christianity. Not because it's a woman, but because it's intentionally mocking the crucifixion. But we just, there's nothing we can do about it except voice our disapproval. So what am I missing? Right? They can be. Yeah, things in the liturgy can be. They don't have to be. Yeah. So we do, we do bless them. When we have our new altar, for instance, the archbishop will consecrate the altar, which is, again, it'll be so cool. He'll have this big thing of oil, and he'll just, like, dump it on the altar. And, like, there's all these, like, really cool prayers. It'll be beautiful. Um, but, yeah. It's actually the problem mostly with, with Catholic symbols is not that there's too many of them. It's that the ones that are, there, there's not enough quality stuff out there right now. Um, but that's a whole other tangent. Yeah. Right. It doesn't have to be, but in our church it will be. When we get back to church, there's statues of Mary and Joseph. We don't worship statues. We're going to talk about the saints. Saints are family members. And the way I describe that to people is it's just like having a picture of someone you love on your desk. And we like candles in front of them because, so if you're from a Protestant background or an evangelical one, the word prayer for you probably is the same in your mind as worship. But it's not for Catholics. For Catholics, prayer is not the same thing as worship. Prayer just means communication. And so when we say we pray to Mary, if you're from a Protestant or evangelical background, when you hear that, you probably hear, oh, you do worship Mary. But Catholics, we really don't mean that. For us, prayer literally means communication. And so what we, when we pray to Mary, what we ask is we ask her to pray to her son for us, to, to, for, her son, for her to go before her son and to ask him to bless us. Okay, here we go. So um, so Mass starts, and just like we said earlier, so we start, you get to your pew. I always encourage people, come early, try to pray. If you're driving to church and you're like, you got Britney Spears rocking out, and you're like, rocking. And then you go to church and you're like, Father Brian, I have such a hard time praying. I'm like, duh. Because like, we're like, I believe in one God. And you're like, oops, I did it again. Right? Like, that's what you're doing. That doesn't go together. You've got, if you cannot pray if you don't have silence. You cannot pray if you don't have silence. You cannot pray if you don't have silence. Impossible. 
If you have trouble getting to places on time, so do I. Turn off the radio in your car when you drive to church. And I very seriously mean that. If you think you can have a thousand things on the radio and conversations going and anxieties, and then all of a sudden go to church and you're like, oh, prayer mode. You're crazy. Life doesn't work that way. You've got to wind down to enter into prayer. So, okay, that's before Mass. Come to church. We possess him, we sing, and this priest starts in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then Mass begins. <clears throat> so, the Lord be with you. And let's see, if you grab your books, let's just start doing this together. Uh, orange side. First page, so page two, first opening page. So sign of the cross. Then there's the greeting. The priest says, the Lord be with you, the people and with your spirit. So then we do the penitential act. And what is this? This is about the question, I forget who asked it earlier. So going to communion. If you, were, if you heard my homily, I don't know if it was this Sunday, but no, oh, I only did it at 6 p.m. The Bible teaches you cannot enter God's presence. It's impossible to be in God's presence with sin. All over the Bible. A couple examples. So when Adam and Eve commit the first sin, what happens? What is it, where does God, what does he do to them? He exiles them. Eden is the place of God's presence. And when Adam and Eve sin, they have to leave. So they leave and they go east of Eden. In the Exodus story, when Moses comes, right? And I know like you guys are like, maybe haven't read the Bible as much as I have, but just think of that Prince of Egypt or something, I don't know. You know the Exodus story. So Moses comes into the wilderness. In Exodus 3, God's presence is in a burning bush. And he walks up and he hears the voice of God. And what does the voice of God say? Moses, remove your sandals for the ground on which you're standing is holy. There's a purification that happens when you enter God's presence. In Exodus 19, the Jews leave Egypt. They come to the, the same mountain where the burning bush was, Mount Sinai, in Exodus 19. In Exodus 19, they have to purify themselves for three days before God's presence descends on Mount Sinai. This is all over the Bible, everywhere. In Isaiah chapter 6, which is our reading, for our first reading this past Sunday, when Isaiah has his vision, he walks into the, he sees, enters into the presence of God, and, his first, and he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Right? Like, like my lips, there's, I'm, I'm a, I say sinful things with my lips is what he's saying. So what happens? An angel flies to him with a burning coal, touches it to his lips and says, you are purified of your sin. And then Isaiah can enter into God's presence. Zechariah chapter 3, the prophet Zechariah is clothed in dirty garments, which we're told are a symbol of his sinfulness. And then an angel comes and purifies him and strips down his dirty garments, gives him new clean garments, which sounds a lot like the white alb you get at baptism. And then he's able to enter God's presence. Peter, this Sunday, in Luke chapter 5, 
Jesus climbs in his boat. He catches all the fish, right? The boats are sinking. Peter turns to Jesus on his knees and he says, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. It is all over. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, St. Paul tells us that, that before any person can enter into the Lord's presence, his works had to be tried by fire and purified. In Revelation 21, we're told about the heavenly Jerusalem, and we're told that nothing unclean can enter the heavenly Jerusalem. I go on and on. Psalm 24, who shall climb the mountain of the Lord? Who shall enter his holy place? The man with clean hands and pure hearts who has not defiled himself with worthless things. This is, on, this is in every book of the Bible. Every book. Okay, so... Um, I was going to say one more thing. One more example of that. The Jews knew this. When the Jews enter the temple, they have purification giant baths called, um, uh, what are they called? I forget. Totally lame. But anyway, they, they go to the temple, they have to go through these giant purification baths. When we go to the Jerusalem, in te- in, or the temple in Jerusalem, they're still there. You can see the ancient ruins of them from the time of Christ. You have to purify yourself before you enter God's presence. Period, period, period. One more example. Sorry, I keep thinking of him. Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, the high priest in, enters God's presence. And what it, the first thing he has to do is kill a bull to purify him from his own sins. Right? And what they did in Jesus' day, this is kind of funny. We know that the high priests, they used to tie a rope around their foot in case they died in God's presence because they were sinful, so they could pull them out. Okay, everywhere. So when we go to Mass, what's the first thing we do? We make the sign of the cross, and the priest says, let us acknowledge our sins, and so prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries. So if you're going to go into God's presence, the first thing you're going to do is say, Jesus, I'm not, I have sin, I'm not perfect. None of us are. And so we ask for God's mercy that we might worship him in his presence. Okay. Does that make sense? Questions about that? Yeah, Katie. Uh-huh. I mean, there is a connection. The, the Spirit is how sins are forgiven and through the sacrifice of Christ. But I don't know explicitly in the Mass where that would be. <clears throat> okay, so really quick, so let's keep moving. But the, the, that confession of sins at the beginning of Mass, that is only for venial sins. We haven't even gotten to that yet. We will get to that. A venial sin means something that wasn't really serious. Essentially, we'll nuance that when we talk about this a little bit down the road. But it doesn't forgive mortal sins. Mortal sin, the church teaches, is only forgiven in confession. What's a mortal sin? Something really serious. It's not like this guy who cut me off in traffic on my way from home from the gym tonight. Right? That's not a mortal sin. Feels to me like it should be, but it's not. <clears throat> but, but if you do something serious, you knew it was wrong, and you did it anyways, that's a mortal sin. 
And so the church says you got to go to confession for that, and you shouldn't go to communion if you're not there. We'll come back to that. Okay. So, what page are we on? <laughs> Two. <laughs> There's different forms of that. The priest, it's up to the priest to choose which one he would, he would like to do. So under number three, right, during ordinary time when I'm wearing green, I, and this is, you know, I don't, you don't have to do it this way, but this is how I do it. In ordinary time, I just do that. You were sent to heal the contrite of heart. Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. We do that during ordinary time. During Lent and Advent, because more of a, there's more of a focus of, I'm going to be aware of my sin and ask God's mercy on that. We do the longer thing, which is number is the first form, A, the confidier. I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters. So we do do that at Lord's during Advent and Lent. Yeah, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. So, and by the way, just, just one last word on that, hopefully. Our culture today doesn't believe in sin. There's no sin anymore. No one ever sins. It's all either mistakes or the culture you were brought up in. And now again, our, our, our mistakes and the culture you're brought up in, do those affect us? Yeah, of course they do. But does that mean that you don't have any responsibility for your actions? No, of course it doesn't. Right? And so it's really good for us to say, Lord, I know you love me. I know you're merciful. And it's good for me to say, Jesus, I have sinned. Okay, so we start Mass that way. Then we do the Gloria. We sing that every part of the year except during Lent. How, do we, how does the one go here? What's the version we use? Yeah, I can't sing. Okay. Yeah, the Gloria. Well, you guys have heard it. Glory to God in the highest, honor of peace, people, goodwill. I forget the tune we use because I'm tone deaf. That comes from Luke chapter 1. It's what the angels sing at the announcement. Uh, or is that Matthew 1? I always get Matthew and Luke mixed up there. One of the two. When the angels announce to the shepherds the birth of Christ, and they sing glory to God in the highest, peace to people on earth. Okay, so then, after that, everybody sits. We have the first reading. Now, the readings, this is really cool. So the readings, almost always, not 100% of the time, but probably 95, 97% of the time. The first reading, there, there, there's four total readings. There's a reading from the Old Testament. There's a psalm that we sing. There's a reading from the New Testament, from the letters of St. Paul or St. James or St. Peter or Hebrews or Revelation or St. John. And then there's a gospel. So there's four readings. The first reading from the Old Testament almost always sheds light on the gospel and vice versa. The gospel and the first reading almost always go hand in hand. So this past weekend, right, we just talked about it. The first reading from, was from Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah goes into God's presence and he has to be purified. He confesses his sins and then he enters God's presence. The gospel is from Luke chapter 5 where Jesus gets in Peter's boat and Peter confesses that he's a sinful man and doesn't belong in God's presence. Do you see that? 
If you pay attention for that, that's so cool. If you're at mass and you're listening, you'll start catching these things. And it's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 where he says that the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament. Okay. Okay, quick pause. Questions? Well, let's start with Pam. So the church, it goes back to the ancient, ancient church. But she asked, oh, sorry, good question. She asked, who comes up with the readings? The ancient church had a, what we call the lectionary, the cycle of readings. And so it goes all the way back to that, but it's revised through time. So the last time it was revised was at the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s. And so everywhere in the world, all Catholics on earth have the same readings every day. And there's something really refreshing about that. I will tell you, one of the things that like, if, if any of you are coming from other Christian traditions, not all of them, but most of them, well, let's say this, most evangelicals don't have a lectionary like we do. And I actually feel really bad for their pastors because they decide what readings they want and what they just want to preach on. And that's so hard like, it would just be so hard. I, I would never pick Leviticus, you know? And I'd be like, hey, you know what? Let's do a series on, like, you know, like, let's do Leviticus 23. Like, I'm just getting an itch for that, you know? <laughs> like, but the, the lectionary cycle the church gives, it doesn't cover absolutely everything in the Bible, but a, a massive, massive, massive amount of the Bible. And that's really helpful for, for us because we get to listen to a ton of the Word of God and it helps priests where like, I don't just pick the passages I want to preach on. The church gives me the full word of God. Steve? Simply the um, second reading and the gospel. What's the difference between the second reading and the gospel yep. as far as who's saying and narrating So the second reading is from the New Testament. So the gospels, right, are the, the four accounts of the life of Jesus. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are the high point of all the Bible. And so that's why it comes last in our readings. The second reading is from the New Covenant. And it's almost, so St. Paul wrote, you know, I don't know, two-thirds of the New Testament. So most of the time that second reading is from St. Paul. But it could be from St. Peter. He wrote some letters. St. James wrote one letter. There's the letter to the Hebrews. We don't know who wrote that. Um, there's, uh, what else am I missing? John has three letters it's one of those in the second reading. Yeah. Great question. So before the, before the Second Vatican Council in 1964, <clears throat> every Mass in the world was said in Latin. Not with some exceptions, but basically. Why is that? And aren't you glad it's not anymore? At least I am. Not everybody is. I am. Here's why. So when St. Jerome translated the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into Latin, that the title for that Bible became known as the Vulgate. And it's the same word where we get the word vulgar. But vulgar is very similar to profane. It doesn't mean like when we think of vulgar, we think of somebody who's got like a potty mouth, right? Like most of my staff um, and sometimes me. But vulgar doesn't actually mean that in its original usage. Vulgar just means common, just like profane. And so, so the reason it's called the Vulgate is because Latin 
was the common language. And so the reason, the reason that originally that the liturgy was translated into Latin and it was every, every church in the world had Latin was for two reasons. One is so that because it was the common language of everyone, it's the same reason we translated it into English in the modern world. But the other reason is, and this is the reason it took so long to get to English, is because Latin, as it started to die out, does, does anybody here speak Latin? I didn't think so. A little bit? I don't speak it, but I studied it. Okay. Well, you're a total nerd. Just, just kidding. Just like me. One of the things is that Latin is the language of the, of the church. And what happened is that because no one spoke it, right? Like, let's say if you guys speak German and you guys speak Italian and I speak English, and I'm saying, oh, the, the, we should all speak, we should all use English in liturgy. And you're like, we should all use Italian. We should all use German. When you use Latin... It doesn't belong to anyone anymore. And so there's a certain sense in which it belongs to everyone. And that's why it lasted so long. But the church finally said, you know what? It's too important for people to have the mass in their own language. So that's why we no longer do that. But one cool thing, one last note on that is that one of the greatest things is anywhere in the world and anywhere in history, Catholics believe the same thing. They have the same worship. The Mass that we go to is the same Mass St. Augustine had in the 4th century. It's the same one St. Ignatius of Antioch had at the beginning of the 2nd century. And there's something so powerful about that. It's not like, oh, my church is like this, and I like mint chocolate chip, and you like Rocky Road. There's one truth. There's one worship. There's one God. There's one church. And it's cool, because if you go to Mass, like in Spain... You, you probably won't, unless you speak Spanish, obviously, you won't really know the words, but you'll know exactly where you're at at Mass. You can go anywhere in the world. I do not speak a word of French. I can go to Mass in French, and I, know, I will know exactly what's happening in the Mass because the church does not belong to a country, a language, a culture, or a time. It's universal. Is that beautiful? I love that. Does that answer it? Okay. So only priests or deacons can read the gospel. It doesn't have to be that way, but it's a way of elevating the gospel, of saying like, wow, and that's why we stand for the gospel. Right? Like with the other readings, little subtle things, right? We sit for the other readings, but when the gospel happens... We all stand. And that just says something, right? Actions speak louder than words, and sometimes our, our bodies just help us, they help us like say something. Okay. Other questions or let's keep moving. This preferred but not necessary. So our thing's always sung. It's preferred but not necessary. Um to add beauty to the liturgy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't usually sing. I, I chant the prayers because I think I've gotten to a point where I'm, it's not entirely nails on a chalkboard. But, but, and I think it adds, I think it adds, like, you don't normally sing things, right? I don't usually, like, talk to people and be like, you know, 
how was your day today? Let us turn to God and ask him how, you know, like we don't do that. But there is, there's something about chanting that tells me, and that's why our churches are beautiful too, right? When you walk into it, like that's why walking into the gym, it's a little harder. But when you walk into a church that's beautiful, it reminds you this is different. Um, there's another question. Yeah. Because of that universality of the church, <clears throat> some people prefer it. Some people also think that um, it engenders a certain reverence. I would, I would tend to disagree with that myself, but there are good Catholics who would say Latin helps us to be more reverent. You know, not just to be like, it's good to have the like, relationship with Jesus where we feel so close to him, but there can also be something that happens where it's like, hey, what's up, Jesus? How you doing, man? That was a wicked, you know, thing you did last week. That was so cool. You know, and like, there's something that's proper to the presence of God that is, that is reverence. Um, so Latin has something to do with that. I actually don't think it does that intrinsically. Some people would say that just because it's not our language, that there's a mysteriousness to it. And so like, again, in Lent, we'll do certain parts of the Mass that way. Um, we'll do like the, like for instance, the Kyrie, when we say, Lord have mercy, we'll do that in, and it's actually not Latin, it's Greek. Kyrie eleison. Christe eleison. Kyrie eleison. That's, that's the Greek for that. And there is something to that, I will say that. There is something of like, I don't know, there's just, you ought to experience it. Okay, let's keep moving though, because we're obviously not going to finish all tonight, but I want to make some more headway. So homily then comes. <clears throat> After the homily, we have creed. So we, we, we profess, our, everyone stands, and we profess the Nicene Creed. That comes from the year 325 from the Council of Nicaea. It forms the basic, like almost no one disagrees with this. The Nicene Creed sums up the basic teachings of Christianity. Almost no Christian church disagrees with that. It was a Catholic council of the year 325. Uh, <clears throat> and what it, what it was about was, without getting too deep into it, people were challenging whether or not Christ was God. And they were using, again, they were using the Bible to, to prove that. Right? Like in Mark 13, Jesus says he doesn't know when the end of the world is. And Arius said he can't be God. If he doesn't know when the end of the world is, he can't be God. <clears throat> and the church at this council condemned Arius and said, no, Jesus is God. He is equal to the Father. And they gave us the basic summary of the faith. And basically all Christians everywhere, ever since, have always said that creed every Sunday. So that creed, we could spend more time on that. There's 12 statements of faith, which is kind of cool, like the 12 apostles. And it's divided into three sections of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <clears throat> then we have prayers of the faithful. We pray for everyone um, across the world. We pray for uh, the church, for our country, for the sick, for the dying, etc., etc., etc. And then we have the liturgy of the Eucharist. Okay. We have five minutes for the liturgy of the Eucharist. You ready? No, just kidding. We'll obviously have to do more next week. Let's just pause one more time. One pause there.
Questions about the liturgy of the word. So the church allows either that, so the Apostles' Creed is a very similar creed to the one we usually say, but the church allows either because they're both very just good kind of summaries of what it means to be a Christian. Yeah, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> How do I prepare for my homily? So early in the week, hopefully on Monday every week, I look at the readings for the coming Sunday. And so I know what they are. <clears throat> and then I'm praying with them all week. And then what happens is I have specific times where I'm not just praying about them and thinking about them, but where I'm very concretely working on them. So what'll happen to me is like last Sunday, like, like right away I saw a couple themes. Like the readings are clearly saying a couple things here and there. And then, and so I'm praying with that. I'm like, God, what do you want me to say to my congregation? And then there's times of concrete, like, okay, this is the, the thing I want. I think I want my congregation to see here. But then it's like, okay, how do I communicate that? So then if you've ever been in my house, I have about, I, I don't know how many books I have hundreds and hundreds of books on scripture. And what I'm doing then is I'm like pulling out books I've read in the past and commentaries. And like, if you come to my house on like a Saturday, you'll see like 10 books on my dining room table. And I'm looking for what other people have said. And I'm like, and then I'm thinking about how do I say this? Right? Like, like how do I, how do I say this in a way where people get how important this is? How do I tell a story or paint an image that like brings us home? And so usually it starts with me kind of with the end in mind. I'm like, here's the point I want to get across. And then I move backwards. I'm like, how do I say that? And how do I get people to relate to that? So something like that, yeah. No, I never listen to other people's homilies. That sounds so arrogant. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think my, my role in the body of Christ is to, is that God feeds me through, honestly, through pre preaching for me. For some, pre some priests don't love preaching. Different priests have different gifts. Preaching for me is my favorite thing on earth. Except when it's, when I give a crappy homily. Sorry, Lord. Um, when I give a terrible homily, then it's the worst thing on earth, like this past Sunday at 11 a.m. We won't get into that. But usually, I, I knew you were going to say that, but thank you, I wasn't going, like fishing for that. But <clears throat> preaching feeds me. Because what I do is when I pray about it, it convicts me. Right? And gosh, I don't know why I'm getting emotional now. I get emotional about everything. But, when I, but it's such a privilege to preach the word of God. And so, so when I pray with scripture, when I think about it, and I see what... Uh, the great scripture scholars and saints and theologians have said, and then I get to share that with you guys. I get to share my heart. Um, and it's so cool. It's so cool to pray all week with something in scripture. And I always want to share more because if I had, I wish everyone could do RCIA, right? I'm like, man, like, I can't explain Luke 24 to you in, in 20 minutes. I can't do it but I wish I could, and I wish everyone would do RCIA so that I, over the course of a 
one and a half classes I could, right? Um, so most, most homilies, it's just I get to share my heart with you guys, but I always wish I could do more. I wish I could be like, oh, there's 10 things that I didn't get to tell you that are just so cool, but you'll kill me if I keep going. So, so there's a three-year cycle of readings, and this is good. We'll have Liturgy of the Eucharist next week. Um, there's a three-year cycle. So the church has really like great names for the three cycles. It's A, B, and C. Yeah, A, B, and C. So every so right now we're in your C, and it starts with Advent. So every like right at the start of December every year, <clears throat> and your A is Matthew. So every year A we walk all through Matthews. Your B we walk through Mark's gospel. Your C we walk through Luke, and John's gospel is mixed into all three, especially during Lent and Holy Week. So there's a three-year cycle, and then the other readings too. So the, the first reading and the and there's Psalm, and the second reading, those are all different each year as well. And that's really good for priests because if we just had one cycle, it'd be hard to preach on the same readings every single year. But okay, let me finish this class off. Um, we'll finish with this, and we'll start here again next week. I one word about the offertory. So after we've done all that, that's the liturgy of the word. And just like the road to Emmaus, Jesus feeds us by teaching us on the road and speaking to our hearts. And he does that in scripture and hopefully in the homilies. Um, But then we start the liturgy of the Eucharist. And I just want to just say this and we'll pick it up here next week. What happens after those prayers of intercession where we pray for other people and the world and the suffering and everything else and the dead, then we bring, we, we prepare the altar, right? So, and we'll look at, next week what we'll do is after we touch on a few of these things, you guys can come up and look at everything and I'll show you different things we use in the liturgy. But, you know, we set out the book, the, it was called the Roman Missal and a chalice and the bread and the wine, all these things. And here's the key. So this is called the offertory. And what, the, what that is, is we're bringing very basic things to God and he's going to transform them into the body and blood of Christ. And that is a symbol of your entire Christian life. That is a symbol of your entire Christian life. And so what the church has always taught here is that the bread and the wine that are brought up, and we do the offertory then too, where it's like people put in money. It's fine. It's actually a form of worship. Paul's clear about that. But what's supposed to happen is that when the bread and the wine are brought up, all the things you went through in the last week that were difficult they were easy, things where you've like really needed God there, whatever it was, you can offer that along with the bread and the wine. And many of the great saints in Catholicism have talked about this. That when the bread and the wine come up, you say, you know what else I offer up, Lord? I'm really struggling with this person in my life. And I'm trying to like love them. It's really hard. And that's all that's my offering. 
sorry, not just kind of my money, not just bread and wine, but here's my life, Lord. Um, and spiritually, you do that with a prayer. And you say all these things, and, and the things I'm worried about, the people that I, I have fears about in my life, Lord, I offer them to you. I, I give them up to you. Um, someone told me very recently there's a mystic who had a vision of, of at Mass, the, this mystic saw people carrying up the gifts, the bread and the wine, and they saw a row of angels behind them carrying vessels for offerings. And it was this, this mystic talks about this horrible, tragic moment because all of the, the vessels were empty because they were supposed to be people's offerings they made. And people don't. So we'll talk about this more next week. This is how when you don't just go to Mass, but when you start understanding these things, this is how you pray the Mass. This is where you don't just watch Father Brian say Mass. This is where you say, Jesus, here's my everything. Right? Here's not just Jesus on the cross. Lord, here's me. Along with him, I give you everything. I give you my life. I give you my past week. I give you my future week. I give you my fears and my hopes, my past and my future. Here it is. I'm going to put it on the altar. Um, Okay. Gosh, I want to not stop, but we have to. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you, everyone. Do we have any announcements, ladies? Okay. Okay, see you next week. Hang on to, if you can, bring those back next week. Bring back your pamphlets. Or if you want to leave them, put them on this, bring them up here or something, and we'll have them next week.